When Tim approached me uh, a few weeks ago about having the opportunity to preach again, um, being that it's the second Sunday of the year, he, he gave me a couple of options. He said, you can, can pick up and continue in Acts where, where I left off last time, or you can do a one-off. And, and initially, um, I was going to pick up an axe, that's easy uh, as far as I don't have to kind of figure out what I wanted to do or come up with a topic, and that was, that was how I was preparing to move forward. But as, um, and by the way, uh, again, our text this morning is going to be from 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading here in a moment, verses 13 through 17, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. Um. But as I go about my day, um, uh, especially now, I, I get the opportunity to listen to different things, and um, there seems to be in our society and in our day today a discouragement amongst God's people. Um, I know there's a frustration out there um, in our nation because we see the direction with which things are going and it doesn't appear to be a positive direction. So I started thinking and I thought, and I kind of approached it as I am more comfortable with at times as a coach. I've done that for a long time. So how would I address this as a coach? You kind of, whether things are going good or bad, you tend to react to circumstances and try to change them on the fly when a lot of times the best thing to do is go back to the basics, the fundamentals of what it is got us here. What are the fundamentals of our faith? And remind ourselves in this world that seems to be heading in a terrible direction, um, what is the fundamentals of our faith? So that was kind of the motivation for it. Again, we don't have to look far. You, um, you can halfway be paying attention to what's going on in the world and know that things are not as they should be. Um, we definitely can give ourselves to it a little too much. We can be paying attention to it a little too much that it becomes distracting. But that in and of itself is kind of what kind of spurred me to um, approach this and come up with this. Hope of the gospel, that is, there's a lot can be said. You can, you can preach for um, months, years on what that means and fleshing out. What is our hope in the gospel? So uh, the, the text that I came to, and one of my favorite chapters, books of the Bible, is early on in my, in my walk with Christ after he saved me, it's First Peter. Um, it just kind of, I, there's a myriad of reasons, but I tip, tend to uh, resonate with what I learned the Apostle Peter was. The Apostle Peter, I can relate to because he seemed to speak when it would have been best if he had not said anything, and I can relate to that. I probably do that more than I should. So a number of reasons that I resonate with Peter. So let's begin reading in um, Peter 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning thankful for your grace and mercy, your goodness towards us, your people. Thankful that you have not left us without hope in this world. Thankful that you have sent your only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom our hope is found. May your word be proclaimed clearly and lives be transformed by your inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so our text, again, I read just for a bit of context, starting in verse 13 through 17, but our focus is going to be in the latter half of verse 14 and the totality of 15. That's where we're going to kind of focus on in this have no fear of them or be troubled and always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. This is kind of typically the, the apologetic te- uh, text where we get um, you hear people, the defense of the faith, and what is your apologetic? This is kind of the text that that is, is rooted in. So we look, what is, what is our hope? Well, Peter doesn't leave this as an open-ended question. He has already answered it. If you would, turn back to verse 1, uh, or chapter 1, I'm sorry. Peter has already addressed what our hope is. He has told us already. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter identifies what our hope is. He identifies himself in in verse 1. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He identifies himself, or in, in verse 2, he identifies the agent for their circumstances as well as their hope. We see the triune Godhead in verse 2. Their circumstances, he says here, these are elect exiles. They have been dispersed. They are not in their land anymore. They are part of the dispersion. They are in Christ's church. But this is according to the will of God. It's according to the foreknowledge of God. Their salvation and their circumstances are according to God's foreknowledge. 
not only God, but it's God's foreknowledge, God the Father. For the sanctification of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's involved, and for obedience to Jesus Christ, the Son is involved. We see our hope in the triune Godhead and our circumstances are determined by this triune God. And he talks about our living hope. What is our living hope? Our living hope is that we have been we have been caused to be born again. Dead men have been brought to newness of life because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is our gospel hope? Our gospel hope promised. If, we, if you would, we're going to come back to this. But turn to the very beginning of your Bible. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to take a look at this hope that is promised Now, Pastor Tim is often, I've heard him say it from this pulpit numerous times, and I think very correctly, we can never master a text, but if we can get a firm grasp on the first three chapters of the Bible, it will go a long way in helping us understand what is going on through the rest of the Bible. The first three chapters... The, the better a grasp we have of that, it doesn't help us. It, 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 it doesn't answer every question. Man, it answers a lot, and it tells us a lot, and it gives us uh, a lot of answers. So we know the first two chapters is creation. He gives the creation narrative, and he declares after each day that it, that it is good. But it's not until he creates man, and he declares that it is very good. The first thing he says in Scripture that is not good, he says that it's not good that man should be alone, and he creates a helper fit for him, and he creates woman out of man. And he issues the mandate to this man and woman. He gives them all of creation. He gives them the garden. He says, everything is yours. You are to rule and subdue it. You are to be fruitful and multiply. There's one prohibition. The tree of the garden, in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of the fruit of that tree. All the other trees are yours. You can eat of the fruit of that tree. Do not touch this one. Well, as we know, they didn't do that. The serpent deceived. The serpent lied. They failed. They ate. And humanity and creation was plunged into sin. So this is the context with which everything plays out from this moment forward. Their hope has been destroyed. Their relationship with God has been broken. But even in this, we see God's grace. God pronounces immediately judgment. He tells them, the moment you eat of this, you'll die. Well, as we see, they didn't immediately die physically. So, does God lie? No, God doesn't lie. They died spiritually. Their relationship with God was forever broken. And God pronounces a curse upon the serpent, which is Satan, the woman, Eve, and the man, Adam. And in this judgment, we see this pattern. Judgment for sin, righteous judgment for sin, and God's graciousness still shows. 
So in verse 15 of chapter 3, we get what is not normally called the proto-euangelion, the first gospel proclamation, the first hint of a gospel. And it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So now there's hope. There's this offspring of this woman that we are to be looking for that will ultimately bruise the head or crush the serpent's head. Judgment, grace. So as we kind of proceed in this, we, we'll read and, and um, I'm going to go through kind of briefly, really quickly, uh, a little bit of a flyover of, of a lot of what's happening in the Old Testament. So again, relationship has been fractured, has been broken because of sin. We fast forward and flip a few pages to Genesis chapter 6. Beginning in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So God is sorry he created man. Again, much like the last um, section I mentioned where, where God says it's not good that, that man should be alone. It's not that God had made a mistake. So the same thing is applies here is it's anthropomorphic language. It's meant for us. It's not that God is sorry that he made mankind. God did not make a mistake. He didn't make a mistake by not creating woman. He did it the way he did it for our benefit so we would take notice of who she is. He did this so we would take notice of the fact that sin grieves God to his heart. He is immutable, but he did not make a mistake when he created mankind. But it should be a heavy thing on us to read where God says it grieved him that he made man on the earth. So he's going to uncreate his creation, and he's going to blot out man from the face of the earth. He's going to wipe them all out. But verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Again, judgment for sin, God's graciousness in preserving a people for himself. He shows favor to Noah. Noah is just like every other fallen human being. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. Noah, he might be better than most of them, but he is still a dead man in need of life. And Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we know the rest of the story. And so flip forward again to a few pages to chapter 8, verse 20. And God floods the earth, kills everything save Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. That's it. So they get off the ark. And Noah builds an altar. And he offers a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham. I mean, I'm sorry, with Noah. And the Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. 
For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, judgment. They get off the ark. What has changed? Nothing. They're still evil. The wicked intentions of their heart. But God says, I will not ever blot out man again. And he reestablishes the created order. As long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The created order from the beginning will continue. And then the mandate to Noah, like he give Adam and Eve, the dominion mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So up to this point, we'll flip forward, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 12. As we read our Bible, this from creation to chapter 12, a great amount of time has taken place. A couple thousand years have taken place. And at this point in Scripture, it slows down a lot. We're going to slow the narrative down quite a bit. We're going to focus on this one man. So in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we are introduced to this man called Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then we flip to chapter 15, and this is where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he promises Abraham. Abraham comes to God in chapter uh, 15, and he's an old man at the time. He's 75 years old at this point, and he has no heir. And he tells God, the, the, the heir of my uh, household will be a servant. And God tells him, nope, you will have your own son, and he will be your heir. In verse 6 of chapter 15, it says, and, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. We have the benefit of the whole totality of Scripture. So we see this verse here, and this says that, and Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is absolutely true. But we know because we have the whole of Scripture, regeneration precedes faith. So Abraham's faith to believe what God had promised him was a gift of God. He does not believe in a saving way unless God first acts upon a dead man to call him and to make him believe. We don't believe on our own. We cannot believe on our own. Regeneration precedes faith. So we see another kind of step forward. This covenant with Abraham that God ratifies is God gives Abraham a faith that he does not, uh, in and of himself, does not generate. And then he ratifies a covenant with Abraham where Abraham is not a part of it. We see the kind of the smoking pot and the flaming torch pass through the, 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 the slaughtered animals. God ratifies a covenant in the book of Hebrews, tells us what is this weird passage talking about. And it says, well, God swore by himself since there was no one greater to swear by. And it's a good thing because 
If Abraham could generate faith enough to believe, then Abraham could also lose that faith. And we see in chapter 16, he does exactly that. If it was Abraham's power to believe, and it was up to him to keep that faith, he messed it up right out of the gate. And in 16, he attempts to fulfill the promise that God had made him on his own. And he takes his wife, Sarah's servant, Hagar, and they have a child named Ishmael. This is not the promised son that God has promised him. But God remains faithful. God remains gracious to Abraham. And you fast forward all, about 25 years, and we see that God promises that he will have a son. He's even older now. 75, he was, they were old, and there was a reason they didn't have children at the time. They were both unable to have children. Well, we fast forward 25 years. He's 100 years old. She's 90. When he makes this promise that you will have a son, Sarah laughed. There's no way. I'm not going to have a son. Are you kidding me? This is a miracle child. And we know Abraham has Isaac. Isaac is the promised son. So we're going to continue again to fast forward. Isaac meets a, a, a woman named Rebecca. He marries her. He has a son, twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And God says, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. His elect and purposes are shown in, these, uh, in Isaac's offspring. He chooses one over the other before they're even born. Jacob has 12 sons. Jacob, um, Jacob's sons sell their youngest brother, Joseph, into slavery. Joseph ends up in Egypt and ultimately saves his family from a famine in the land. This same famine that in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, your people will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, but I will, have, I will judge those people. Joseph ends up in Egypt and again ultimately saves his family from famine. Joseph pictures Christ in that his own people, his brothers, sell him. They betray him and sell him into slavery. But what does he do? He saves them. It's a picture of what Christ has done for us. We have, as sinners, we have betrayed him, yet he is faithful to us. Again, we fast forward. Moses, we're introduced again. Hundreds of years pass, and they have forgotten um, Joseph, and, and, and the people of Israel are in uh, uh, Egypt, and they are slaves now, and we're introduced to a man named Moses. Um, Moses delivers them out of Egypt. They flee to Mount Sinai where God gives the people the law. He makes a covenant with them again. And he says, I will be, uh, if you will be my people and I will be your God. And they said yes to this. They agreed. So they go and this land that has been promised back to Abraham. And they go and spies are sent out and they look at the land. And they come back and they bring a report. And the majority report and the minority report were the same. It's just as God promised. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. The problem is, is the majority report says, but they're too many. They're too large. We don't, we don't stand a chance against these people. 
So they said, we can't take it. So for their disobedience, for their unbelief, God judges an entire generation and marches them to death in the wilderness. Ultimately, Moses dies, and Joshua takes the people into the promised land. Disobedience continues among the people, and then they ultimately, they reject God, and they ask him for a king so we can be like the other nations. God establishes his covenant with one of these kings, David and his son Solomon. But because of continued sin and rebellion, this kingdom is divided into two kingdoms, northern kingdom of Israel and southern kingdom of Judah. Then the northern kingdom falls into captivity in 722 B.C. to Assyria. And then finally in 586 B.C., the Babylon takes the southern kingdom of Judah captive. Fast forward through all of this again, Throughout all of the Old Testament history, many of these stories we're very familiar with. We've heard them. But God has demonstrated his grace to a rebellious, disobedient, sinful people throughout all of it. Every turn, they disobeyed, yet he remained faithful. At every turn, he remains faithful to them despite their disobedience. He establishes a pattern and he speaks and he, he, has, he has kept back a remnant for himself from the fall till now. And though the people of Israel would eventually return to the land they were exiled from, they would never again be a united kingdom. They would always remain under foreign rule. So what is our gospel hope that is accomplished? Flip to, to Matthew chapter 4. The four gospel accounts introduce us and tell the story of Jesus from different perspectives. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew and Luke record Jesus' birth narrative and they also give the genealogies of Jesus. Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy from Abraham to David to Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus from Joseph to Adam. And John tells us that this Jesus is the incarnate Word, the eternal Word of God, in whom and through whom everything was created. And then Mark identifies him as the suffering servant, that is prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. This is who we're introduced to. This is who Jesus is. So we look. We've, where did things go wrong? Back in the garden, right? So Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1, unlike our first parents, Jesus resisted and overcome the temptations of the crafty serpent Satan. In verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and he said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to be <coughs> loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word 
that comes from the mouth of God. This is cited from Deuteronomy 8.3. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16 Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Cited from Deuteronomy 6.13 Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So Jesus did what our first parents did not do. He resisted the temptation of Satan, and he begins his ministry. Then we look, and Jesus perfectly fulfills the law of God. And um, in his Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 of Matthew, we read in verse 17 and 9 through 19, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So throughout Jesus' ministry, he does things like this to upset the people of Israel, the religious leaders. He talks about not abolishing the law. He um, resists the temptation of the devil. And then he begins his ministry and he starts saying things that gets him in trouble. For one... Um, he routinely said things and he engaged, uh, enraged the religious leaders. He said he was the bread of life come down from heaven. They knew exactly what he was talking about. He'd come down from heaven. He healed people and performed miracles on the Sabbath. That was a no-no. You don't do stuff like that. that. That'll get you in trouble with the, with the religious leaders in Israel. He challenged their authority by demonstrating his through his teaching. He taught as one who had authority. He demonstrated his power over creation by turning water into wine, walking on water, calming the storm, feeding 5,000 with a loaf of bread and two fish. He did this and many other things. Jesus demonstrated his power over the powers of darkness by casting out demons. Jesus demonstrated his power over sin by enduring the cross, absorbing the full Righteous wrath of God for our sin, dying a death he did not deserve, conquering the grave by walking out of the tomb three days later, ascended into heaven and is, in, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. So there's many things that Jesus did. Again, he, he is the fulfillment of many of these Old Testament prophecies. But before he ascended into heaven... We're currently going through a series with the students that is, it's one of my favorite texts prior to this, but 
It's Luke 24, and we get the Emmaus Road and the disciples that Jesus goes to, uh, walks the Emmaus Road with. And several men uh, of us men are taking the students through a series called the Emmaus Road, and it's doing basically what Jesus tells the disciples. He opened the scriptures and told them all of the things that concerned himself. And again, this is the Old Testament, all the scripture they had at this time. So that's what we're doing with the students. We're taking from Genesis, and we're going to work our way through Revelation, and we attempt to show the gospel and Jesus Christ to them from Genesis to Revelation. It's a little more challenging with some books, but some books, the challenge is, is there's so many, it's where do we land? But he's throughout the Bible, we see, throughout the Old Testament scripture, we see this promise of the gospel and of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all of it. So Jesus is the promised serpent crusher. Jesus is the ark through which God saves his people from the judgment of sin. Jesus is the promised son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in which all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, the promised king whose kingdom and throne will endure forever. All of these things and many more, this is who Jesus is. And before Jesus' ascension into heaven, he tells his disciples the last thing he tells them is recorded for us in Matthew 28. We're all very familiar with it. It's the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has accomplished our redemption. He is the greater Adam. Jesus forever lives to intercede on our behalf. He is the greater Moses. Jesus' kingdom, which, which we belong, will endure forever. He is the greater David. Jesus is our only hope. So how do we approach this world? So let's go back to where we started in 1 uh, Peter chapter 3 and answer the question, how do we respond to this world? that is without hope. One of the first things that kind of jumped out at me is the ESV, I don't think, renders this verse in 14 as strongly as what's being said here. I, I, I read from the ESV. I like the ESV. It's not a bad translation, but there are times when different translations just do a disservice to the text and, and kind of leave the weightiness of it out. So the ESV says, have no fear of them nor be troubled. The New American Standard Bible says, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. The King James Version says, be not afraid of their terror, nor be troubled. And then finally, and I think this is one of the, I think the best, and it more accurately describes what is being said here in the text. The uh, Legacy Standard Bible says, and do not fear their fear, do not be troubled. So, what does the unbelieving mind fear? Well, um, the unbelieving mind fears the same things in the 21st century as they feared in the first century. Ecclesiastes tells us, uh, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. It's, it, what has been will always be. The difference is, is our ability to do it. So the same fears are the same for the unbeliever is the same fears today. 
And what is that fear? I think it boils down to losing their perceived autonomy. To acknowledge God is to lose their perceived autonomy. Because if I acknowledge that there is a God, then he has a standard that I must live by. And I have to lay mine aside. And that's not comfortable to me. So I think that ultimately is what is the problem for the unbelieving mind. So in our day, what does the average unbeliever fear? Here's uh, a couple things that just jump out at you. And it's been this way for a while. Climate change. We're going to destroy our planet. Overpopulation. There's too many people. The earth cannot, uh, the earth and its resources cannot keep up and sustain life on this planet. And then finally, disease. Someone's going to make me sick and, I'm, and, and possibly kill me. Now, why do they believe these things? Well, it's their worldview. Um, the students just got through going through a worldview um, study on Sunday nights. Worldview has a big reason for who, what we believe and how, why we believe it. The unbelieving mind's worldview ultimately is we're a cosmic accident. We're the product of time and chance. Our worldview, the worldview of the unbeliever at its root is utterly hopeless. A true atheist, a true humanist, a secular humanist that is honest with you will tell you, Yep, my worldview is hopeless. It is hopeless, but I still will hold on to it um, because I am that set on, not, on being the Lord of my life. There's not going to be another Lord of my life. So how do we understand and how do we respond to this unbeliever? I think Paul tells us in Romans in chapter 1, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unbelievers, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they know God, knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools. So God says, be fruitful and multiply. The unbeliever suppresses the truth and unrighteousness and says, we are too many. We must stop having babies. A couple decades ago, China did exactly this. They mandated, they put a cap on how many children you were allowed to have. And if you had too many girls, they just killed the young girls. Because a male society cannot reproduce. But a society with females can. And the recent study has come out and they're dying. They can't sustain the younger generation. There's not enough of them to replace the older generation that's dying. So in their foolish hearts, they have created their own demise. That's what the unbelieving mind does. That is a hopeless existence. So ultimately, China has destroyed itself by preventing the mandate that God says, be fruitful and multiply. They said, no, 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 can't do that. God said, let us make man in our own image. The unbeliever suppresses truth and unrighteousness and says, we are the result 
of evolutionary process of time and chance, life has no value. That's why we can kill the baby in the womb by the millions. That's why we can slaughter people in war and not blink an eye because we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's what the unbelieving mind does. That's how that happens. It's a natural consequence of the unbelieving mind. If, if life has no value, then who's to say I can't end a life or take a life? You can't. You must have a standard. And God has, has, and God has given us a standard. We are his image bearers. And as such, even the most vile among us has inherent value because we are his image bearers. So we look, and you can still be dis, um, discouraged. I know uh, I used to be more discouraged than I am now, and it's, and it's, and it's God's grace. It's his grace towards me. Is, uh, I do get frustrated, and I do get aggravated, and a lot of it is I have tempered how much I watch the stuff. I keep, I keep informed just enough to not be ignorant of what's going on. But the book of Hebrews tells us, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So the foolishness of the unbelieving mind, man's attempt to usurp God's created order, is being shaken and brought to nothing. Every time a man looks to his leaders for a savior, every time nations go to war, every time a man dresses as a woman and a woman dresses as a man, Every time a baby is mother, murdered in its mother's womb, every time man calls good what God calls evil, God is shaking the foundations of their foolishness and bringing them to nothing. So how are we to respond? How do we make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you? Well, we do what the apostles did. We do what countless other brothers and sisters have done before us. We preach Christ and Him crucified. We declare that God's law is perfect. We get married, have children, raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We take back from the unbelieving world what God has entrusted to us in faith. After all, we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The one who spoke the world into existence, the second Adam, is now bringing everything into subjection to himself. Pastor Charles Spurgeon says concerning these things, it's, quote, I myself believe that King Jesus will reign and the idols be utterly abolished, but I expect the same power which turned the world upside down will once, upside down once will still continue to do it. The Holy Spirit would never suffer the imputation to rest upon his holy name that he was not able to convert the world. So we can, without, <clears throat> we can with confidence face the trials of this world and boldly proclaim Jesus' gospel to this lost and dying world. As our Lord hung dying on the cross, his last words were, It is finished. This is our confidence. So whether we face blessings or trials in this life, we can be assured that like we saw last week, Pastor Tim's sermon said, take heart. In this life you may have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. 
we have this confidence that our Lord and our Christ has overcome the world. We need not fear what they fear, but be ready to boldly give an answer for the hope that is in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do. We stand on your truths and promises of your word. Remind us daily of our hope in Christ. Make us bold witnesses to this hope, always ready and eager to offer a reason for our hope. This world is lost, but you have not left it without hope. A sure hope, a conquering hope. May we see lives transformed by this gospel hope. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.